building your church, Lord. And we've taken phrases, and I'm going to review those in a minute, to, uh, to ask the Lord really to revitalize this ministry. What, will, what is needed? What must take place? Psalm 85, verse 6 says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? <clears throat> We've been talking about the revitalization of the church, a need to be revived for the purpose of rejoicing in God and seeing Him work. We just spent a week in Boston and had a great time with Max. We went to the house of John Adams, our second president, One of the famous uh, romances of all of history is Abigail Adams and her husband John and the many letters that they wrote back and forth to each other. And one thing that Abigail wrote to her husband John on October 16, 1774 can be applied in a sense to our lesson today. She said to her husband, this is prior to uh, the Revolutionary War beginning, prior to the Declaration of Independence, but the desire for freedom and liberty had been... uh, swelling amongst many of the people. She wrote, quote, You cannot be, I know, nor do I wish to see you an inactive spectator. That's our key phrase, an inactive spectator. We have too many high-sounding words with too few actions that correspond with them. That really what Abigail Adams wrote to her husband in 1774 could be applied to the American church today. We have too many inactive spectators with many high-sounding words and not enough actions that correlate to them. And so the purpose of our little five weeks here has been to kindle our hearts a desire for God to move and then to do our part in participating, not spectating, but participating in advancing the kingdom. And so the four phrases that we've looked at so far... We talked about making uh, the phrase, make your face shine upon us, where we, we realize that God's favor falls upon righteous people. We're not talking about a prosperity gospel where wealth and health is the favor of God, but it is His, it is his movement on our behalf that comes to the righteous, His presence in a special way. We looked in Exodus, the phrase of Moses, show us your glory. God, we want a deeper, more full experience with you. Um, it should be all of our desires, right, to look around the auditorium and say, God, we, we want more. We desire to see you more. We desire to see you more as your kingdom takes over in the hearts and lives of our friends and family members. We desire to see uh, people saved. We, we, want, we want more than what we're experiencing now. And remember, Moses had experienced so much of God through the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, and he spoke to God face to face, and yet he desired more. Then we talked about the hand of God. The key to the success of our ministry is for us to be obedient. And then two weeks ago, we talked about just the phrase, together, and that the whole of our Christian experience is to be done together, and that the great weakness of Grace Baptist is our camaraderie and fellowship that we do not have the relationships uh, that, that we should have, and we encouraged you in that lesson to strengthen those, and we're going to continue to work on that in the months to come. I want to go to another phrase uh, for finishing up this series in Haggai, and it's the phrase, consider your ways. And we'll come into that in just a minute. 
But Haggai could really be a case study of all the things that we've talked about already in those four other phrases. Let me give you some background on the book of Haggai since it's not a book that we turn to very often. Haggai was written, uh, or the events of Haggai happened in about the year 520 B.C. Haggai is, one of the, is the really first prophet of the post-exilic era. In other words, the people of, of uh, Israel, actually the nation of Judah, had been taken away into captivity by the Babylonian Empire in the year 586 by King Nebuchadnezzar. They, this was done so because of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry and their worship of other gods. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, God prophesies through Jeremiah that the people will be in captivity for 70 years. Okay? 586, Haggai writes in 520, that's 76 years. They've already been making their way back. I'll explain it more, but here's what Jeremiah 29:10 says. You could also look at Jeremiah 25, verse 11. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then comes a verse and a couple of verses that Christians misuse maybe more than any other. In Jeremiah 29, verses 11, 12, and 13, this is what God says. I know the plans for you that I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans for your good, right? And a lot of people take that verse and say, oh, God has, well, and God does have plans for us. But that particular verse is talking about the plans he has for an idolatrous nation, which he took into captivity for 70 years, but the plans are that they will eventually return to this God-given nation of Canaan and, and be allowed to return there. And that's what's happening under guys like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, a guy we read about here. Joshua. And now God is also going to raise up some prophets to speak to them during this time. So when I say Haggai is the first prophet of the post-exilic era, they have not heard from God for a long time. Right? Years. And now Haggai comes and says, thus says the Lord. What a joy it must have been to hear the Word of God. And they start off so well, these people. I'll say more about their the hearing of the Word of God in just a minute. But let's consider, again, we're still talking about their background. The people that Haggai is speaking to, I mean, it's a book that you could read in five minutes. We read one chapter, there's only, uh, there's only uh, one more chapter, and then you'd be done with it. So it's a very short message, and, and it is a message to a certain type of people. A lot of times, Prophetic messages in the Old Testament are given to an unbelieving people, an immoral people, or an idolatrous people. This is not the case. These are the right people. These are, I, won't, I don't say good people because nobody's good, but they, they, they are believing people. They started off very well in their return to Babylon, but their problem is that they were passive, indifferent, apathetic, and lazy. And you know what we tend to do with those type of sins? We tend to kind of say, well, yes, those are sins. But it's not immorality. It's not idolatry. It's not unbelief. We, well, to be lazy, indifferent, apathetic. But God has some very strong words for these people. Think about these folks. They left the luxury and grandeur of the greatest nation of the earth 
at that time, Babylon, to return to their home, the land God had given Abraham, to where their ancestors had lived and died, and what they discover is rubble and ruin. They endured hardship to arrive in in the travel from uh, Babylon back to Jerusalem and found terrible results. So these are, I think, it's, I think it's James Montgomery Boyce says, these are the right people doing the right thing in the right place for the right reasons. Okay? They left the idolatrous nation of Babylon to return to a place, not that's going to be easy, but it's going to be very difficult. They're going to have to basically rebuild everything. And they got right down to work. They started doing the right things. A survey of the book of Ezra tells us what they did when they arrived. Ezra chapter 2 verse 68 and 69. The first thing they did was take an offering. Because they look around and they see the rubble and ruin of the city and they say, we're going to need some money. So they take an offering. We've never had an offering like this here. 1,100 pounds of gold, three tons of silver, a total value of $5.5 million in our estimates. They start off great, don't they? They come from a a, a nation of luxury. They return to a place of destruction. They immediately give for the building of it. In Ezra chapter 3, they laid the foundation. They had a worship service. In fact, the people that were listening to the worship service, you can read this in Ezra 3 later yourself, the people that were part of the worship service, some were singing and rejoicing. Others were crying and weeping because of Uh, of just the emotion of the return. And so the people listening, some of them couldn't even understand what was happening. This was just an emotional, worshipful moment where the foundation of the temple of God is rebuilt. And they're on their way, right? They're on their way. A plus, two gold stars so far. Then in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, some enemies began to oppose this work and talked to King Artaxerxes and said, this is just all paraphrased, it's Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 23 for your future study. But he's, they say to Artaxerxes, don't you understand what these people are doing? They're going to build this up. And you know what their history is? Their history is that they are rebellers. They aren't taxpayers. They, you will have nothing but trouble with these people if you let them continue to do what they're doing. So Artaxerxes says, yeah, you're probably right on that. And he halted production on the building of the temple. People stayed in Israel, stayed in Jerusalem, but you cannot build the temple. They, they abandoned the work for 16 years. Grass growing up around the foundation, you can imagine being abandoned. You imagine the people walking by it. Their zeal and interest that they had had in such great numbers when they returned began to wane. And they began to get busy with other things. That's just the background. Okay? And so we begin. There's so many different themes in the book of Haggai. The themes of obeying God's Word. The effects of good, powerful preaching. Priorities, apathy, indifference, zeal, and the things, uh, and the things of God. But really, the singular message of the book of Haggai is consider your ways. In just two chapters, it's mentioned four times. Verse 5, look at it. Therefore, the Lord of hosts says... Consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Chapter 2, verse number uh, 15, just use the word consider, but very similar phrasing here. Then consider from this day onward. And then in verse 18, it's actually mentioned twice. 
consider from this day onward since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. The, the, the idea is for us today through the message of Haggai to the people of Israel is to consider. That word means to give careful thought to your ways. It really means to set your heart on your own ways. So today, I, I like what Dave prayed just a little bit ago. Clear the clutter from your minds and the point of the next 20 minutes or so in our lesson by looking at the case study of these people, is to consider our ways. Let me make two statements about it before we get really into what I want to say. This, this type of consideration and this type of thinking has to be purposeful. That's number one. It has to be purposeful. In other words, it's not just a passing thought and then we're going to get on to our, to our lunch and then we're going to get on to the rest of our day. It has to be a lingering evaluation. A lingering evaluation. When you walk into a museum... You can tell the people who are art lovers versus the people who have been dragged there by the art lover. You see some sort of painting on the wall. Let's imagine it's this. And you, the art lover does what? What does the art lover do? Oh, just. And the other guy's like dragging the person away. Here's what I do in a museum. Yeah, looks, looks great. Looks, yeah, art museum. Who cares? Right? And some Christians now. In churches, could, 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 we could compare ourselves to that art lover. Either we can look at the Word of God and then look at our lives and really do some introspective, purposeful consideration, because that's what that word means. Set your heart on it. Or it can just be this passing, right? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tune in as long as Andy drones on and wait for the song and the skedaddling. Okay, so it's got to be a purposeful. If God's Word is going to do its purpose in our lives, then we have to be purposefully considering. That's the first thing. It also has to be, secondly, personal. Personal. It's considering your ways. It's easy and actually kind of fun to think about other people. But this consideration is to be personal. We are to take a long and introspective look at ourselves and our ways. And I want to compare it to what the message that Haggai was giving. It won't be long today. I've already given you most of the background. This, though, is the word of the Lord. Remember, it's been years since they've heard a prophetic word, and God is going to approach, I already told you what their problem was, their apathy, their laziness, and their indifference to the work, the rebuilding of the temple with some very biting, convicting words. Here is the star, the, the, the uh, key thought of their problem. Okay? The, this is their problem. They, 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 were, they started off great. Okay, these are believing people. We're not, we're not talking about unbelieving people at all. They, they start off great, but then they got busy with their own pursuits and let the work of God slide. That's a, that's a key thought. Okay? They got busy with their own pursuits and let the work of God slide. For 16 years, okay, they come back from Babylon, they immediately lay the foundation, they have this beautiful service, emotional, weeping, singing, shouting. They get a little bit of opposition, they back off. 16 years they back off. Meanwhile, they're busy with their own stuff. This is so indicative of American evangelicalism. We are pursuing our own things while the work of God is secondary. The work of God 
slides. Someone else will do it. It's not as important. We pursue those things, wealth, career, our own fun, personal pleasures. Basically, our priorities are wrong. Here's what Harry Ironside, former pastor of Moody Church, says. Alas, how much is sacrificed for money? But you can fill in the blank with anything. This is in his commentary on the book of Haggai. How much is sacrificed for our own pleasure? How much is sacrificed for our own wealth? How much is sacrificed for our own fun, our own priorities? Here's what he goes on to say. Here are some of the things that are sacrificed. Christian fellowship, the joy of gathering at the table of the Lord, opportunity for that tonight. Many will not take advantage of it. The opportunities for gospel work, the privileges of mutual edification and fellowship and instruction in divine things, all of these are parted with as they see an opportunity to better their earthly circumstances. That's the end of the quote. Ironside is saying, based on what the people of of, uh, Haggai's day are doing, is that they are sacrificing these blessed spiritual joys for their own things. Okay? Many Christian people are sacrificing their spiritual blessings, the joy of mutual fellowship, edification, Lord's Supper, service, gospel ministry, so that they can pursue earthly stuff. And so God is going to speak, and He begins. I'm only going to have two points still working on the introduction, but here, here's how He begins. You look at verse 2. Here's God's attitude towards these people. That's exactly what He calls them. These people. You know, when God calls you that, not a good thing. Because they're who? who is he, how does He usually refer to them? My people, His people. He's like, these people? That's not a good thing. It's a sign of His displeasure. They are my people, they are his people, but they're not acting like it because their priorities are not his, they're theirs. And then he says, these people, continuing in verse 2, these people say, and the tense is that they continue to say. That's what the tense indicates. It's not like these people said at one time. What they're about to say is their constant approach in life. It's not just a casual argument. It's a constant approach. And here is what they say, verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Imagine, it's been 16 years and they've been saying it for that long. Artaxerxes gives them a little pressure, they back off. Then you could imagine a couple people walking by the temple area. Uh, Hey, uh, maybe this is a year later, two years later. Hey, do you think we ought to get back, uh, finish that job? These people say, it's not the time for that. Not the time for that. Three, four, five years later, uh, boy, look at that. It was, remember the fun we had at those Saturday work days? Not Saturday work days for them. <laughs> those work days we had building that temple. Come on, let's get back at it. No, 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 it's not the time. Not the time. Ten years later, 12 years later, right? This is just not the time. It is not the time. When people are confronted, and again, their main problem was indifference, apathy, and laziness. They let the work of God slide. And when people are confronted by that, this is a pastor of 25 years' experience telling you this. When they are confronted by this, you know what they begin to do? They begin to make excuses. I've heard every one of them. Every one of them. But they almost always boil down to the same two excuses 
that Haggai's people use. Okay? Verse number three and four is one excuse. Verse number nine is two excuse. It's the second excuse. The first excuse that most people use. And again, we're, talking, we're not talking about coming to people who are having a struggle with immorality or they're, they're totally off the rails spiritually or we think they might even not be saved. These are believing people. I, I gave you the key point. That's why I did this. It's key. They are believing people who started off well but then let the work of God slide. They just became apathetic. Just kind of kind of slide into this lazy spirituality. And you approach them on this. You say, hey, when are we going to see you back at church? Or hey, we got this ministry for you. Or hey, we've missed you. And the excuses come out. And they're always the same. I don't have time. I'm too busy. And that's what Haggai's people look at. Verse 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came. Uh, this is verse 2 again. The time is not here. And then verse 9, God says, but you are busy. This is the end of verse 9. You busy yourself with your own house. When people use those excuses, they are doing so to assuage their own guilt. I'm trying to say this as strongly as I can. Because they know, if they're truly believing people, they know who should be number one in their life. I mean, from 14 years old, little, little teen girls, keep God first. That's what they write in the kids' yearbook, keep God first. Everybody knows that Christ should have the preeminence. And then when their lives aren't backing up what they really say, well, I just, you just don't understand, I just don't have the time. And what they're really saying is other things are more important than God. That's what they're saying. Other things take precedent over coming back to this communion service tonight. It's been happening since Haggai. Again, Boyce told me in the reading, he's dead, but he told me in a book that I read by him this week, these are right people, they want to be in the right place, they have the right motives, but they have misplaced priorities. When I think about the issue and the excuse of time, these are usually the way people have responded to me, and I'm just saying this is what they're doing in Haggai, right? They, they might say, they, I, I summarize it this way, they either say, it's not time, I got no time, or I'll do it next time. Not time, no time, or next time. That's what, and let me go over those with you. You know, you, you, you might come to someone and, and say, uh, listen, I could really use somebody, let's get, let's get real Grace Baptist personal here, I could really use somebody to drive the van on Wednesday night and pick up the children. Well, this is just not the time. Uh, you know, they postpone. You know, they, they, they may have the desire to, but they say, this is, this is just not the time. Or they say, I got no time. And what they're really saying is their priorities are messed up. Because they have time for the things that they really want to do. I just don't have any time, you know, to take a nap this afternoon. Right? I just don't have any time to work on my classic car. Right? Or I just don't have any time to hit the Black Friday shopping. It, it, people make time for what is important to them. We all do. And if Christ and His work and His kingdom is the most important thing, people make time for it. Then they say, Maybe next time. Perhaps another time. 
I've heard these phrases in different ways. I just jotted some things down. This is a big joke, but people have said to me all the time, well, you don't understand. You understand. That's your job. You're supposed to. So, so I'm supposed to put God first because I'm a pastor, but nobody else is supposed to put God first? Sometimes I would just like to, I'd just like to say that. To, so it's only pastors that have to put God first. Well, Andy, you just don't understand the plight of the working man. People have said that to me. You know, we work, we work 5 a.m. to 5 p.m., and then you're expecting me to come to Bible study or drive a bus or, or that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's been really crazy for us. You just don't understand what it's been like. We've been really busy. <laughs> Folks, life is busy for everybody. There's always something to do. How does God respond to these excuses? Don't, don't, don't. Again, we're considering our ways. How does God respond to these people saying, it's not the time? He Basically, let's summarize it in two questions, and that'll be our lesson, and we'll be done. Okay? He does it really in a, he responds to them almost in a sarcastic, biting way that if a prophet or pastor spoke to people this way, almost like they'd be accused of being unkind. Like if someone came to me and, and I said, uh, you know, hey, uh, would you would you like to uh, would you like to come uh, start coming on to Sunday school? You haven't been coming to Sunday school. Well, we just don't have the time. You know, I've heard this. That's our family time. Um, we have a family time on Sunday night. And oh, okay. Again, what they're basically saying is there are certain things that come before God that that these things are more important. And it, and if I as a pastor respond the way the Lord did, he he's very sarcastic here. Again, we read it, but let's just review it. The word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai, the prophet, verse 3, and then verse 4. Well, is it time for you to dwell in paneled houses? Is this, is this what time it is? For you to live in luxury while my house lies in ruins? Again, let's put this in the form of two questions. We don't have much more to say today. In the form of two questions. Here's how God responds to the excuses of the people who said that it's not time. First question, what do you have time for? What do you have time for? God says. Verse 4 says, you seem to have time for your paneled houses. Some scholars believe that this indicates that there's a sign of luxury. They're not just living in a regular home. They even have time to panel it. Others, maybe that it's just you, you are looking after your own homes. We have people who are living in luxury while God's house remains in ruins. In other words, what God is saying is, you have plenty of time for yourself, but no time for me. He's saying, you have a problem of inverted priorities. You have failed to put me first. Consider Exodus 20, verse 3, when God in the Ten Commandments says, you will have no other gods before me. I must be the preeminent factor in your life. Deuteronomy 6, 5, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. You are to be completely devoted to me. God does not mince words about what He requires not from his pastors, but from anyone who would want to follow him. He requires this complete, preeminent devotion. And in verse 9, God says, you are busying yourself with your own house. That's such a great word, busy. In the Hebrew, it's a word that actually means to hurry. In fact, if you're looking at a King James Version this morning, it actually says that they run to their own house. They run. It's the idea of urgent and intense concern. 
July 4th, we're sitting on the Charles River in Boston waiting for the fireworks to go off. And I, I asked the cop where the fireworks are going to go off. And I, I, liked, I, I ended up just liking talking to cops because I just like to hear them talk. They're going to be over the harbor. You know, they say, okay. So we're getting in position for it. And you, should, I mean, you know what happens when the first fireworks go off? Everybody's sitting on their little blankets, eating their ice cream, listening to the, to the symphony or whatever. And the first fireworks go off. You know what happened? Everybody, I was like, why is everybody standing up? We can see it just fine. Everyone stood up and ran right to this one spot that they thought was the best. People are jostling and pushing for a 20-minute firework. This is, the, this is what that word means, a hasty energy running to something that concerns or excites us. And this is what the people of that day were doing. It's not time for the building of the foundation and the building of the temple. And God says, is it time for you to live in luxury homes yourself? busying yourself, running to your own concerns and things, feverish activity for your own self, involved in every single activity that the community and the world offers while letting your commitment to me dissipate? That's, I mean, Haggai could be here in this pulpit today saying these same things. right? I don't have time for service, I mean, even, even we're talking about attending. I don't have time to attend, but, but then you ask me to serve, and then you ask me to minister, and then you ask me to outreach. Come on, pastor, you just don't understand the plight of the working man and how busy we are. Folks, I got a family. I got a home. I got a job. I got two jobs. I understand what it means to work. I'm not afraid to work hard. The idea that God's things can just take a second place to our own concerns is what Haggai, God through Haggai is saying to His people. Stop busying yourself with your own things. I just, I just jotted down a little list of things. Well, He says in verse 9, He says, while His house lies in ruins, there is so much here to do. The grounds, the lawn, the edging, the rocks, the plants, the ivy, the windows, the door out front, the steps going down, the gutter, which was fixed, thank you. The kitchen is a disaster, the ceiling, the youth room needs plastering. That's just the physical aspects of the building. Then there's outreach, visitation, bus ministry, caregiving, welcoming, hospitality, leading games for the children, teaching classes, being a discipler, evangelism. Spending time in the sound. There's all kinds of different ministries. There's all in, in the bulletin for the last three weeks. I say there are many projects that need getting done around the church. There's some physical project. There's some spiritual projects. There's all kinds of things that could be done, and some are just so busy with their own stuff they don't have time to do this. The second question God asks. Let's bring this to a conclusion. He says, well, what do you have time for? He's accusing them of misplaced priorities. And this is where he really starts to say, consider your ways. Okay, consider your ways. You know what he's saying? Consider, this is question two, consider where has that gotten you? Where has that gotten you? So question one is, what do you have time for? Question two is, where has this gotten you? So when he says, consider your ways, what God is saying is, consider how your lazy, apathetic, indifferent ways have how has that affected you? Okay. What has that life gotten you? Think about American Christianity okay? and the people who are so busy with all kinds of different activities 
that there's no time for God, there's no time for church, there's no time for relationship, there's certainly no time for ministry and service, right? Where does that get them? What does that type of living reward us with? Let's keep looking at it. Consider your ways, end of verse 5. Verse 6. You might just, if you're taking notes, you might just do two little columns. Here's what it's got in them. I'll, I'll give you the left-hand column, you give me the right-hand column, okay? They have sown much, and what? Har- got, n- got nothing, harvested little, okay? Keep going. You eat, but you don't get enough, right? You drink, but you don't have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the last one, you earn wages, but you put it into a bag with holes in it. I remember taking marbles to school and having a sock with a hole in it. And the marbles are falling out as I'm walking away. Kids are picking up the marbles. That's kind of the picture here. You are so busy. Look at the busyness. You so much. You earn wages. You have eating, drinking, and you, and you clothe yourselves. I would say that the things that it brings, the, the, the type of reward that, la, that that life brings is frustration, dissatisfaction, and loss. It leaves the people who have prioritized other things with emptiness and want. You know what Jeremiah 2 says about this, right? Jeremiah 2, 11-13. My people have, fors- have committed two evils. They have forsaken me and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves that cannot hold water. The things that they are doing do not satisfy them. Isaiah 55, but you come Come to the waters and drink freely. Come, those of you who have no money, and buy without price, and you will be satisfied. A life of feverish activity and busyness in all kinds of other things, our own priorities, and not the priorities of God and ministry and service and outreach and Christ and fellowship, that leaves you with emptiness and want. And then these people can't understand why they're so unhappy. It's happened over and over and over again for me in 25 years of working with people. And you're talking to the believing people. Hey, would you just step up and, 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 and make God a little bit more of a priority in your life? Pastor, you just don't understand. We don't have the time. And then later... We just don't know why our family's off the rails. We just don't know why we're so unhappy. We just don't understand why God is doing all of this to us. I mean, Scripture is very clear, isn't it? It's clear why this is happening. Why are they harvesting little? Why do they not have enough? Why are they not filled and satisfied? Why are they not warm? Why is their money just going? Why? Who is responsible? God is. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and it came to little. All the stuff that you did, you wanted it to accumulate for you, but it came to little. And, and when you brought it home, wh- why was it gone? Because I blew it away. God is responsible. Why did I do that? Why did I blow away all your achievements? Because you have been busying yourself with your things, not mine. And so there's a drought. Why is there a drought? Verse 11, because I called for it. 
when our priorities are inverted and we give ourselves to our own things, we find that we are working against God in a sense. And we come to dissatisfaction. What is the solution? Let's make three applications and be done. The solution is the same as the rest of our lessons. And this is why all five of these lessons kind of go together. Let's, let's look at the Scripture and find the solution, okay? God has diagnosed the problem very clearly. It's the problem of inverted priorities. He has diagnosed the symptoms that come as a result of that, the frustration, dissatisfaction, the loss. And then He also calls for the solution. Verse number 7 right in the middle of the passage. The Lord says, the Lord of hosts says, consider your ways. Here's what you should do. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. Look at verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed. It means they went up to the hills and brought wood and built the house. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. I want to mark something so I remember to say it in a minute, but the solution is the same as we've always talked about. It is faithful, committed obedience. Faithful, committed obedience. Verse 12 shows their immediate response. They didn't fall back on the excuses. They were convicted by the word that Haggai gave, and they gave themselves over to the committed obedience that they should have been doing all along. And when you do that, this is what I've been saying for three or four lessons, God's favor falls on the righteous. God's hand is with the obedient. And look at verse number 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. Now compare that to what he was doing. While they were, while they were accumulating and chasing and running after their own things, what was God's stance towards them? Right? I blow it away. All your achievements, all the things you I'm against you. I brought a drought upon you. And when they begun to be obedient, I'm with you. And again, it is not a prosperity or God is going to blow the doors of the finances open if we just obey. But God is behind and for those who are obedient. And the solution is to just do what God says and put Him first. Christ must have the preeminence. And stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. There are a lot, I mean, Dave and I talked about it Wednesday. There are a lot of things that I would like to do in the evenings. There are a lot of things that could, could take our, us away. And sometimes on Sunday afternoons at 3.30 when I'm waking up for a nap, I would like to stay there. But I'm the pastor, so I have to come. Right? you got to stop. We all have to stop that type of thinking as if there's one standard for Andy and one standard for everybody else. We're all going to be judged by that same standard. Now, as a teacher, as the Word of God, as I teach it, I will be held to a standard of whether I gave it appropriately and rightly and accurately and to the people I care for. But as far as am I obeying the commands of God to keep God first or are you obeying the command? There is no separate standard here. Okay? 
And so the solution is just for all of us to consider our ways and think, has, has putting God on the back burner sometimes brought to us the type of satisfaction that we've desired? Let me ask these three questions for application and we'll be done. Number one, can you bring evidence that your priorities are correct and that your greatest zeal is for the things of God? As you think about your life over the last three months, six months, one year, we're not talking about 20 years, think about it in the present moment. Is your life right now demonstrating that your greatest zeal is reserved for God? Right? You save your best for Him. The priority is Him. The doors are open, you're here. An opportunity comes along to serve, you take it. You see uh, individuals in the community, your first thought is, they need the Lord. Can you bring that type of evidence? Second question. Would you consider where your apathetic life is leaving you? Just consider that. That's what the challenge is from Haggai. Consider your ways. And then thirdly, what changes in priorities and obedience can be made in your life, your family's life? What changes can be made? I desire so much to see God work in this place. But it can only happen as we have used this phrase over and over the last time I used it, as we stack hands on these truths and say we are not going to fall for these excuses, but we ourselves are going to be committed to Christ and Him first and foremost. And then, the promise is that His face shines on us, His hand is with us, and He is for us. How desperately we need that in this day. Let's pray and thank Him. Our Father, we are so grateful for this message from Your Word and a reminder to each one of us that we must keep you as the most important priority in our lives. Time and busyness are only excuses, God, that reveal in our own lives a lack of true priority. Convict our hearts and change us where we need to be changed. That your hand might be on these people and on this place. That your glory, that's, that's, the, that's the whole essence of verse 9 and 10, that you would be glorified. That your kingdom would advance and that your name would be honored. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.